Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. my favorite Christmas songs. That is not, however, one of my favorite versions of my Christmas song, but it's very, very appropriate for today's episode. That was Christopher Lee from his 2012 single, A Heavy Metal Christmas. It's available on Apple Music. That was The Little Drummer Boy. What a melodious tune. I mean, (laughs) I don't know what says Christmas more than Christopher Lee singing heavy metal versions of our beloved tunes. What a way to start. This episode, I do know what is is better than that, and that is a handful of Euro horror classics that Christopher Lee starred in in the mid '60s. Absolutely, Christopher Lee starred in a lot of movies, and not all of them great. A a selection of Euro horror movies remastered, looking better than they ever have before, and available for the first time. Many of them in a nice, great box set. That is a Christmas gift. If you haven't, then that is the gift of the season as far as I'm concerned. Yes. And if those of you watching the video companion, you will see we are in a crypt today, which is very appropriate. We are going to dig deep into that box set after we review our movies. I just have to give a spoiler alert. I never knew with each case I opened what I would find. Maybe it would be a soundtrack. Maybe it would be a card with something on it, maybe an extra DVD. Not only is the set in itself a gift, but each component of it contains gifts. And it was just really enjoyable to open and go through. It's a nine disc set, eight Blu-rays, one CD, and a book. That's more than a pamphlet. It's a little, little nice mini book, close to 90 some pages, 91, 90, 93 pages awesome set. You know, Severin has become one of the premier Blu-ray providers out there for obscure and European horror and and lesser known films right up there, maybe even more prolific than Mondo Macabro. We live in a time where we've got these small labels putting out, you know, in some cases, limited editions, but we're getting stuff that we never would have imagined. All the big studios, they're still holding on to stuff that we wonder why Universal and Paramount isn't putting stuff out. Meanwhile, we've got companies like Severin that are taking care of us with these great box sets. That's right. And we're not going to cover in full all of the movies in this box set, but you want to tell people the ones we are going to cover? Yes. The Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee collection has got a lot of movies in it. We are covering three. We are going to be taking a look at Crypt of the Vampire, Castle of the Living Dead, and The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism. For our third movie, we will be joined by our friend Steve Turek to talk about The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism and then the set. So we have that to look forward to. 
if he's not completely exhausted from all the other podcast projects that he's been working on. Well, let's call this meeting to order, and I guess we should say who we are. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from CaseyCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. Let's start with a roll call of new members. We continue to have increasing numbers in our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club Podcast, and that is wonderful. Shall we take turns here and read off the names? You got the list with you? I do. Do you want to start? And I will take I do want to start because then every other one brings me to the one that I'm happy to say. I'm I'm happy to say them all. I don't mean that, but... (laughs) It's somebody people might know, and I think it's very exciting that this person has joined our Facebook group page. So I I would like the privilege of saying that name. But first, we have Joseph Davis. Next, we have Jose, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. That's the other reason I wanted to. I I figured, I figured so. (laughs) Jose Olinto. That's how I do it. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Steve Bowen. Rick Dunn. Penny Dreadful. That name sounds familiar. Yes, yes. Horror host and hosting now a great Dark Shadows podcast. Keith Myers. And Beth Waldron. Welcome everyone officially to the club. I saw you welcomed several of them on the page. We talked last time about how that's not as easy as it once was, but we do want everyone to feel welcome. We're just glad that the club continues to grow. Yes, YouTube podcast companion, we got some feedback there, which I was very excited about. It means somebody, well, and there's something I missed when I sent this to you, Rich, and I'll point it out that I didn't even catch the first time I read this. This does show me here's somebody that discovered the podcast companion on YouTube before the podcast. And so I think that's really cool that those efforts are sort of starting to to pay off a little bit. and, And hopefully some people are enjoying both of them. But this is from Michael Dodd. He says, hey, guys, I just discovered your podcast after hearing the Nashi episode mentioned on the Nashi cast. That's the part I didn't realize is that. Oh, no, I didn't catch that. Yeah, that's awesome. Rob Barnett, Troy Gwynn were very supportive through the month as we did this episode. And I did some posts. I was very pleased with with how Nashi turned out. And special shout out to you because you had a fantastic <laughs> Nashi November with so many extra reviews. If you out there have, or you're listening and you have not taken the time to read Jeff's blog, there is a plethora of Nashi reviews out there that are all fantastic. If you want to know more about Nashi, he'll give you a uh, a great guide to follow and, and so many of the movies that are out. Uh, I enjoyed reading them all. I actually, I think I've still got a couple to read. That's the ones that just came out at the end of November. Uh, I played catch up and then it's like, bam, there's like three more reviews come up. It's like, you're kind of like Steve Turk. I can't keep up on the podcast. It's like too much coming out. Anyway, congratulations. You did a fantastic job on that. Thanks. It was fun. And, you know, mostly I just couldn't stop. I was enjoying so much the movies we watched and thought I would just try to continue it and and watch and rewatch some of those movies again. So back to Michael Dodd. He continues to say, I'm digging the Monster Kid vibes. The Beast and the Magic Sword is one of my favorites. And when Mondo made the great Blu-ray available, it was huge. My favorite Nashi flick is La Noche de Walpurgis, 1971, also known as Werewolf Shadow. Not the U.S. version. The Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman, which is heavily edited and badly dubbed. Vampire Woman is fun, too, with some hilarious dubbing, but the original uncut version that made Nashi a star is far superior. Thanks for your efforts, and I'll continue listening and watching the YouTube companions. 
Well, he likes Beast and the Magic Sword, so immediately his opinion is <laughs> obviously incredibly valid. You know, I, I want to see Werewolf Shadow. I actually like the the Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman. I, you know, I even acknowledging it's a dubbed film, and immediately when you watch dubbed films, you've got to be in the mindset for that. And oftentimes the versions are vastly different. Thanks again, Michael. And anyone else, you can leave a message there on, on YouTube. You can leave it on our Facebook group page, or you could even call us. We have a line where you can call and leave a message, 616-649-2582. That is 616-649-CLUB. If you all could only see that, I might have to include that in the video. Such heart and soul poured into that. Should we open the crypt or open this box set? This is where we insert sound effects for crypt <laughs> opening. So I just want to set the stage a little bit for the movies that we're going to talk about. Uh, kind of talk about Christopher Lee. Why did he make so many movies in Europe and well, in Europe, in Italy, in Germany uh, versus his home country of England? So let's just start, breeze through these real quick. In 1961, he had just made Pirates of Blood River for Hammer in England at Bray Studios. And he went to Rome and made Hercules in the Haunted World with Mario Bava. And then this time, it, it's interesting to me, but I don't really understand a lot about it. For tax purposes, for some reason, because he was working in so many different countries, he moved to Switzerland in 1962. And this would be his base of operations for several years. Uh, I think maybe this is why his 1962 output compared to subsequent years is very low, I don't know if he was aware ahead of time, but being a resident there, he had to spend six months of the year there. In 1962, he made only two films, Arabian Adventure and Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, which we will talk about later. 1963 output definitely picked up. Uh, he went to Italy and made four films in a row consecutively, The Whip and the Body in May of 63, Challenge the Devil, uh, which we will again talk about. It's part of the, the box set. The Virgin of Nuremberg, also known as Horror Castle. And then finally, the fourth movie he made in Italy in 1963, the first one that we're going to dig into, Crypt of the Vampire.
la crypte du vampire. Count Ludwig Karnstein brings Friedrich Klaus to his castle to help solve the mystery of a long-dead ancestor and family curse. Meanwhile, his daughter Laura suffers from nightmares about the murders of Karnstein women, murders that turn out to really have happened. Laura finds peace with the arrival of Luba, but she may be only a temporary cure. All secrets are revealed when they visit the Crypt of the Vampire. So this is going to be fun, Rich, because we have had names that have been Spanish and all sorts of, of different countries. We get Italy this time, which I'm not sure we've had. Let's see if these are any better to pronounce. Crypt of the Vampire was written by Tonino Valeri and Ernesto Gastaldi. It is from the novel Carmilla by Sheridan Le Fanu. We'll talk about how faithful that is or not. And it was directed by Camillo Mastorsink. <laughs> or Thomas Miller. Let's go with Thomas Miller. That's easier to pronounce. Yes, yes. I like to go with their the real names, although I agree, they, I agree. They change them to make them look English, and with such uncreative names at that. I mean, <laughs> yes, Bo <laughs> Smith. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty bad. So it was released on May twenty seventh, nineteen sixty four, in Italy. It runs eighty five minutes long. And Rich, did you know it's available on Blu ray in the Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee? I've heard something about that. I'll have to look into that. <laughs> well, how did you like it? First time viewing for me. You know, I enjoyed parts of it. This is an interesting film because Christopher Lee playing the character of Count Karnstein, it seems to me like, you know, he's there and then he's not there and then he's there. I mean, it's, you know, he kind of comes and go in the, in the film. I almost want to say you know, almost more of a, of a supporting character in this film than a, than a lead, almost, almost. I thought it was well-made. I thought very atmospheric. I felt like it had a, it had a good start. Uh, I felt like it had a, a great climax, but it seemed to really drag in the middle for me. I, I felt that there was some, some meandering and, and some, some slow moments, but it kept my interest level up because, again, I, I liked what was happening visually on the screen. It just felt like the script kind of seemed to to meander around a little bit. It definitely had a, a, a European horror feel to it, which I was definitely in the mood for. And so I think that's the thing is I think if anyone watches this, you've got to be in the mood for some Christopher Lee and especially for some European horror flavored films. I think if, if you're going into it blind and, and not prepared, that it might leave some people enjoying it less. European horror films have a certain feel. I watched this dubbed because Christopher Lee did his voice. I kind of remember if there was even an option. Do you remember if there was an option? I, you know, this? I don't because this was very odd. I normally on a movie like this go in. I make sure that I'm watching the foreign language with the English subtitles. I learned watching all of these movies that that's sort of the default. And then I watched one where it wasn't, the, it was the dubbed. And I looked and I changed it to subtitles, but it wasn't, and this is going to be hard to describe. It's not the original subtitles, if you know what I mean. I don't think yeah. it was ever released in that version, but it was released for someone who's really Italian and wants to read it in English. So this is where I don't know what was original or what was not. I couldn't tell you which one I watched 
some of these films, it's the problem is like, so are you going to get Christopher Lee's voice or not? I think like with what Castle of the Living Dead, that one, there wasn't an option. I think you, you had to watch that one dubbed. But Christopher Lee's voice is in that, which is is a plus. But here's my question. So when they actually filmed the movie, what language were they speaking? European horror films are, and Euro films in general, oftentimes they they don't add the language until afterwards, right? I mean, it's like they they film it and then every, everyone dubs their parts, which is oftentimes why, you know, even if you're watching a European film in its original language, it still is dubbed uh, and it still almost sometimes has that dubbed quality to it, even though you're listening to it in the in the quote unquote original language, it, which makes it kind of a, a unique experience that can possibly pull you out of the moment. Again, you got to be in the mindset, dive into it, know what you're getting into. I know for me, going into this, I needed to hear Christopher Lee's voice. And so you said you watched this with the subtitles. Did Christopher Lee dub his voice or was it somebody doing I, Christopher Lee? I, since I watched them all, Rich, I am sorry. I don't remember which I watched. I don't I tried not. I, I get that, but I tried not to let that be a factor in whether I liked the movie or not. I, you know, I can understand that and respect that. Cause sometimes I, I you know, yes, I want to watch the original language. I guess with somebody as, as prominent as Christopher Lee, my my mind as I dived into this set was like, uh, I need to hear Christopher Lee's voice. Whatever version, I've got to be able to listen to Christopher Lee's voice on these. That was my choice. Yeah. Normally, I always go with subtitles. In this case, I, I didn't. I, I think I, I think on all three, I went with dubbed versions so I could hear Christopher Lee's voice. But I did enjoy the movie for being a first-time viewing but it, it, like I said, it, it it was slow for me in, in the middle part. I was, I was kind of struggling to keep my interest in this film, and then it picks up, you know, towards the end. It's like okay, then it, then the climax is is kind of worth hanging in there. What about you? You said first time viewing. That was my experience, my first time viewing. So this was my second. But way back in 2012, I wrote about it for an article about all the adaptations of Carmilla. I watched it as a group with Vampire, Blood and Roses, the Hammer Karnstein trilogy, Blood Spattered Bride. And of that group, I thought it was the weakest. So I didn't particularly like it. I watched a horrible print. This is an example where for me, the print did make a difference because this is gorgeous, gorgeous black and white cinematography. And this viewing, I liked this movie a lot. I really, really liked it. I didn't get uh, any of the dragging that you felt. I saw a lot more similarities to the original source material that I missed the first time. I love the twist, though, the flip around at the end, which is different than the Carmilla story. I loved the sort of three-way relationship between Friedrich, Laura, and, and Luba, it, it's so funny. For those that don't know, Carmilla is, you know, supposedly a lesbian vampire. And it's sort of subdued back when it was written. It, it wasn't really played up, but it's it's there if you read it. And it's sort of the same here. It's very innocent. You know, the two women hold hands and go to the bathroom together, and, you know, things like that. But women do that, you know. So it's there if you want to read it in. So it's very interesting because Friedrich wants to give Laura comfort. And 
before Luba appears, it even appears they're going to go down that road of, of a romance. But then suddenly Luba appears and she's not interested any longer. There's a great scene where he tells her that he doesn't want her to be lonely anymore. And she goes, well, I'm not. Since Luba arrived, I'm not lonely anymore. And, you know, what is Friedrich but chopped liver, you know? Uh, so I really I like that relationship, that dynamic. There's a lot of good dialogue in this movie. I thought really worked. Just sort of some inside jokes like Laura says, we rarely have visitors here. It's like living in a tomb. Yeah, it is. The hunchback character, the the hunchback beggar, because almost any horror horror movie needs a hunchback beggar. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, he he says, like, in some houses, death is a tenant. I kind of liked the imagery of that. that. That was a great line. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred years, 200, 300. What are they? A blink of eternity's eyelid. It's that imagery of eternity in an eyelid. Like, I don't know. I I liked it. I picked up this. These are probably things I didn't see the first time. Didn't appreciate. I would really love to hear what you thought of it if you returned to it, you know, a few years from now. Because I'm actually in a debate whether this is my favorite of the three or not. I tried to go into it with, with low expectations, but admittedly my, my expectations were a little high because it's like I was kind of pumped up about this. And even though I came out of it at the end thinking, oh, okay, I didn't like it as much as I thought I would, I want to see it a second time because I thought the same thing. I was like, this was a movie that if I watch this a second time and really, you know, with a fresh set of eyes, having seen it once, let's watch this again. I had a feeling that this is a movie that I might appreciate more upon second viewing. If there is even an inkling of something that I like in the movie, I am open to revisiting it down the road. A lot of different factors can go into an enjoyment of a film, even right down to how awake are you when you're watching it? You know, are you exactly what kind of day did you have at work? You know, exactly. I mean, sometimes you know, you just want to veg out and you had a hard day at work and you just want to stick something in. And especially when you're dealing with movies that are are subtitled or film like this, which is that Euro horror has a different flavor to it. I think you need to to go into these with a pretty fresh set of eyes and and be ready to soak it all in and experience it. And and so, yeah, absolutely is one. I I, I would go back and revisit this one again, probably sooner than later, because I'm, I'm, I'm in this Christopher Lee mode now, (laughs) you know, it's kind of like I had started watching twice now the whip in the body which is on mm. shutter and both times i have fallen asleep i've started it far too late i've attempted that now maybe even three times i do like it it's not perfect but i do like elements of it but i'm like gotta be awake when i'm ready to watch these movies so because that's that required me to be focused a little bit more and all the times i've watched it i was like i didn't have the energy for focus that's one that i'm gonna finish sooner than later as for Christopher Lee, you're right. He he does sort of disappear, but he, I like the the structure of the story. Him calling in, you know, somebody to investigate, and it, it all hinges on finding some evidence of what did Sarah is that her name? They don't use the name Carmilla in this anywhere, but Sarah is the ancestor that. The, yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like, I you know finding what did she look like because he is afraid his daughter has I guess been possessed by her and that would somehow make her them look the same. So if he can find a picture, this will either prove or disprove that this is actually happening to his daughter. So I like that. And therefore the scenes he's not in, 
he's there. His presence is there. He's sort of set up this plot and he comes in when it's important. And there are scenes that wouldn't be appropriate for him to be in with the two girls or even with Friedrich and Laura. So that didn't bother me too much. He's in this more than some of the movies in this set and less than some of the movies in the set. Yeah. A couple other things I like. I don't know if we're going to talk about budget much. You kind of assume these movies are of a lower budget, although with the different countries financing them, I don't know, maybe they pool into a lot. None of these to me look like they were on a low budget. There's one scene in this, though, that kind of indicates that. They'll show exteriors of the castle kind of from the ground up. It's just the top part of the castle and the sky, you know, is very white. Well, then, you know, there's going to be thunder and lightning. Well, so the sky changes, but it's it's very abstract. The, the sky goes yeah. black and then it's white and you hear the thunder. So you kind of have to put two and two together. But if you noticed, it's just a picture that they've changed the background because between the light and the dark, the picture shifts just a little bit. It's like oh, not okay. stationary. But I, I liked it because it it almost looks like a negative when they did the light. I don't know how technical term, but kind of we had a scene, I think, in one of the Nashi films where it looks like it's the negative. Yeah. So to well, me, that's, that's what a, it looked like. And I, did you notice that? I thought that well, was. Yeah, really- I think there's an advantage of, of European horror films because oftentimes location. Right. You can have that low budget, but you can almost visually increase your budget by having it set at like a real castle certainly helps with like uh, in in the next film as well. And, and the the visuals is that you've got the ability to do some, some exterior scenes or what have you, you know, or just even the, the imagery. I think the castle setting in this enhances the movie greatly and covers up for whatever low budget they may have that particular scene you're talking about. I, I, yeah, you know, I did catch that. That's, that is interesting. And it didn't throw me though out of the moment, but I mean, it, yeah, it does kind of symbolize like, yeah, you're dealing with a low budget here. Other factors cover up the fact that they don't have a lot of money to work with. That really comes into play in the next film as well. And the last point I want to make about the screenplay is that this more than the other movies to me has these little subplots. Uh, Ludwig Christopher Lee is having an affair with Annette played by Vera Valmont, who's the blonde servant. And well, I I guess it's an affair. He's not cheating on anyone because he's not married, but he's sleeping with her. They're not really interested in getting married, but she kind of teases him about it. At one point he says, well, that that'll never happen. Like I'm old enough to be your father. Yeah. It's just an interesting take. You know, I mean, if you're an older man with a younger woman, you may acknowledge that, but you don't admit it. You know, it's kind of yeah, like you never admit trophy. It. No. she's your prize, you know, and like for them to both acknowledge that it, it makes it okay. And I, I liked that a lot. When he says that in line about the Bible, then you can adopt me or something like yeah, that, right? It, Doesn't she say something that's like, like well, she's flexible at least. She <laughs> was like, oh, well, then we can do this. Yeah, it was kind of funny. Yeah, and but she's not a uh, gold digger either. I mean, she's no. not out for anything. So it's no, yeah. a lot of fun. Well, what do you got on the cast? I picked some of the, the main ones here. So I think I might've missed a couple, but I went with Laura played by Adriana Ambessi. Did like 22 films. Uh, she was in Challenge the Devil and also in a film that I've heard this title several times. I've never seen it. 
Fangs of the Living Dead. The character of Luba, played by Ursula Davis. 13 films, most notable, An Angel for Satan, uh, which, of course, Barbara Steele movie. Uh, that's a title I think we're going to mention a couple of other times here as I work through the cast. I didn't really have anything on Jose Campos, who played Friedrich Klaus. 22 films, a lot of foreign titles. And so that's, I mean, there's a lot, as I was looking through the cast of all three of these films, there's a lot of foreign titles. And so I'm, I was trying to, to, to pick out familiar titles or, or genre films, totally knowing that I might be skipping over. Jose Campos may have starred in the biggest film ever to come out of Italy. And I don't know the name. Uh, I apologize if, if I downplay some of their, their films. That's my inexperience. Screenplay by Tonino Valeri. He was also a director and directed uh, Day of Anger, which is a great spaghetti Western that I've seen. I love that movie. I also did My Name is Nobody, which is another film I've seen quite a few years ago since I've seen that one. Ernesto Gastaldi is well known for a wide variety of films, uh, Vampire and the Ballerina, uh, The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock, Long Hair of Death. And one film that has been on my to watch list on Shudder for quite a while, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. Mm. And I think that's come out. Somebody's put that out on Blu-ray recently. The uh, director, Thomas Miller, uh, <laughs> Camillo Mastrosink, 69 films dating back to 1937, including An Angel for Satan with Barbara Steele in 66. Mm-hmm. Actually, this was not the first movie we watched out of the set. I, I did Castle of the Living Dead first because I initially thought that was released prior but then i realized that it wasn't so this was actually the second movie we watched out of the set but i enjoyed it and i I look forward to revisiting it at some point in the future with a fresh set of eyes this movie had been released but mostly in in low budget releases and i want to say probably bootleg releases i'm not sure that it ever got an official release you know certainly has never looked better 2k scan from a fine grain 35 millimeter master print. It didn't have much. I mean, it only had one special feature, which is a trailer. Not a lot of, uh, of extra stuff here. DVD drive-in said, uh, truly haunting, brimming with atmosphere and shot in authentic Gothic ruins. It's a must for anyone who enjoys vintage horror starring Christopher Lee. And I think that's a, a pretty good description there. I think, you know, a great addition to this set and gives you a, a pretty good idea of what we've got coming up. You mentioned something that made me think. I wanted to mention at some point all of the original movie posters for these movies. I don't know if they're done by the same artist, but they're all very interesting. I always, when I'm doing my research, look up at the images on Google Images. And if you saw them in real life, they're going to be probably like as big as the side of a barn because they come in such odd sizes over there. But they're painted and they're just very interesting images. Some of them, I think, are on the covers of these the other thing is these being international releases and maybe filmed in Italy, but then maybe released in Germany. And, and then, of course, the United States, you see these posters, the same artwork with different titles in different languages. And that's always interesting and confusing. Anything else about Crypt of the Vampire? No, no. I think uh, I think this is a great start. I think it's safe to say you liked it better than I did, but I'm absolutely open to revisiting it. I definitely liked it. It's not that I disliked it. After this was filmed, he returned home, quote, to England and made The Devil Ship Pirates in August of 63 and The Gorgon in December of 63 for Hammer. 
He started out 64 with an episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, The Sign of Satan. I've never seen that. Have you? I did many, many years ago, like 30 years ago. I was trying to make a point of of watching the Alfred Hitchcock episodes that have notable guest stars. Can't remember anything about it, though. Then he went back to Italy and participated in the production of an Italian-French film called The Castle of the Living Dead, which is our second movie. Slowly, relentlessly, destiny ticks off the terrifying minutes of anguish that freeze the blood. The Castle of the Living Dead. In an atmosphere of horror, The story of a man who violates the forbidden frontiers of science to arrive at a frightful but lucid madness and atrocious inhuman crime. Starring the unforgettable creator of Dracula, Christopher Lee, in a new triumphant performance, breathtaking as never before, sadistic and pitiless, subtle and monstrous. a film with a thrill a minute it will hold you spellbound with its unexpected shocking surprises in which tragic reality and unearthly fantasy blend in an atmosphere of horror and suspense Count Drago brings a traveling gypsy troop to his castle to put on a show for him but he has ulterior motives. Despite an old witch's warning that death is coming, members of the troop begin disappearing one by one. It's up to Eric and Laura to solve the mystery and escape with their lives from the Castle of the Living Dead. Castle of the Living Dead was written and directed by Warren Kiefer. It clocks in at 91 minutes. It was released on August 5th, 1964, and again is available from Severn Films on the Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee in Blu-ray. Go go figure. (laughs) Rich, take it away. You've got some history with this movie, it sounds like. I watched this in the early 1980s with my dad. This was on Creature Feature with Cremation Mortem on a Saturday night. Very vivid memories of of watching it with my dad. You know, I can't remember what my dad thought about it. I want to say my dad probably wasn't overly impressed because he, I remember my dad, you know, always commenting on like bad dubbing in movies whenever there was dubbing and that, that threw my dad off. This was on Creature Feature a couple of times. Uh, They they would repeat movies sometimes. And so I I remember seeing this twice uh, at least. And then I've revisited it over the years. You know, I, I, I had it on VHS. I had it on DVD, a copy that I recorded off air probably at least 15 years ago uh, and have it now in, in a great looking print. This is something that for whatever reason, 
its quirkiness, I think, is why I've always been drawn to this movie. I love Christopher Lee in it. I, I love the gypsy troupe and I love the crazy witch, you know, some will live, some will die. And Donald Sutherland playing multiple roles, playing the witch amongst one of them, which he plays multiple characters. He plays an old man. He plays Sergeant Paul, uh, kind of who's the bumbling police, I guess, for lack of a better term. He's an officer. And the witch, I think he does better as the witch, honestly, than he does Sergeant Paul. And I love the fact that, spoiler alert, the character of Nick, who's the the dwarf character, is kind of the hero of the piece in a a weird way. I mean, towards the end of the film, not being the, the final hero, the very final moment, but he ends up playing kind of a dashing character in kind of this weird way. This movie, there was a lot of extras on the Blu-ray. One of the things is from the Castle to the Academy, which is a career interview with producer uh, Paul Meslansky. Uh, and then there was also the uh, the Castle of the Mystery Man with uh, Roberto Curti, the author of Mavericks of Italian Cinema, talking about writer-director Warren Kiefer. Not to mention audio commentary, which I did not get a chance to listen to, but Troy Howarth provides the audio commentary on one of the films. And we get a CD soundtrack as a bonus on this music by Angelo F. Lavanino, conducted by Carlos Savina. I don't know what viewing this is, multiple viewings at this point, and I enjoyed it immensely. It is dubbed. I don't think that there was any option to list to watch it subtitled, actually. You do get Christopher Lee's voice, which is, is the plus. Uh, I thought visually it it was a really good print uh, scanned in 4K from the Italian negative for the first time ever. Previous prints I had were good. This was a a really good print. I loved it. What about you? Well, (laughs) so the interesting, this was my first time viewing and this is the only one, well, that we're talking about that was first time. So I'm going to flip places with you and hope that maybe I'd like it more in a second viewing. Some of the same reasons you cited for the first movie, I thought it was incredibly slow moving. I was flat out bored in some parts. It has a lot of great elements. It just doesn't go together well for me. I did not like it. Uh, This is my least favorite of the three. A couple nitpicky things. The cinematography, I don't think, is as good as the others. I think it's the weakest of that. The black and whites don't look as sharp and as and rich as they do in the others. Um, I would agree with you there. I will say, yeah, I think the print was was you know better than it's ever we've ever had. I would agree that Crypt of the Vampire was more atmospheric. Now let's I'll be clear on, on something. I was called out on Facebook by our dear friend Joe Carson. Uh, it's not a print; it's a transfer. I want to be clear that we're using the right to, I, to be honest, I kind of don't really know which is which, but the one we watched is what we're talking about. I didn't think Christopher Lee's makeup was very good. He looked like a raccoon. I mean, it- <laughs> he did look a little off in this movie. Yeah, he does have that kind of blackness uh, under his eyes. Now, I did not think raccoon and now I will the next time I see it. <laughs> Thanks. You've just ruined my beloved film. I agree. And I'm looking even at the cover and it's like, yeah, he does kind of have. It looked like it need to be blended in a little more. I mean, I get the dark circles under the eyes. I don't think this is his best performance out of 
these movies. So now that's my all my bad. I want to talk about a lot of the good things that are in here. I just said I didn't think Lee was very good. There's one part where he's terrific, and that's when he's watching the show. He's the, the well, he's got his henchmen with him, but he's sitting watching the show and they do this bit where someone is hung. You know, they're having trouble getting the noose around his neck. So the executioner puts it around his head and says, here, I'll show you how, and then gets hung. They've We've seen that before in the square when they perform the show and now they're doing it here. So Lee doesn't know is that in this case, the person is really hung that is in on the act. And he did know what was coming. Remember, he drugged him. Oh, okay. Right, 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 right. But regardless, his reaction is just hilarious. He he laughs, bursts out laughing and applauds. Well, he might not have known that 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 the hanging was gonna happen. I don't know though. Now I don't know. Now you made me think maybe he didn't really know, or maybe No, he I think know. he did because he did yeah, because that guy had been wobbling around all week. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right though. I I, I yeah, his what, clapping and, and it's yeah. So, it's so sinister, even if there was nothing going on, for him to laugh and applaud when someone is hung is interesting yeah, in and of itself. And if he did indeed know that then that adds layers to it. So I really well, like I mean there's this fascination, right, with, with that they had back then of like watching a hanging. It was like a public event. It was like, yeah. oh, we get to go to a hanging. And then you've got the beginning. Nick is the dwarf is carrying around little sticks with yeah. little people hanging is giving away it's like yeah. little toys. Oh, I'll take a souvenir. Look, look, I got this from the hanging. Yeah. You know? Before I knew that that was a show and I thought it was really a public hanging. You know, they kind of that's how they kind of introduce it. I thought that they were giving away those toys at a real hanging. <laughs> The hanging sequence at the beginning, I've always loved that opening sequence because that's when we get introduced to the character of Sandro, the Igor character of the film, his glee, fascination of of the whole hanging, which we also get introduced to Donald Sutherland's character of Sergeant Paul and and his two right-hand men that are with him. And also fascination and glee at at, at witnessing the hanging and, you know, amazed at, at, you know, oh, he's still alive. I don't know that it's it's, uh, morbid, but twisted, kind of funny. Uh, I've always kind of like loved that, that opening. And, you know, we're also introduced to the, the character of Eric, who is the new guy and it ends up becoming the new guy. He's a former soldier and he's kind of stumbled upon this and ends up basically inadvertently joining the group once the character of the Harlequin, whose character's name was Dart, ends up essentially leaving the group in, in a bit of, of a tussle and, and a fight that takes place between uh, Dart and the uh, character of Bruno, who's the, who's the boss of the troop, who is the one who ends up hanging himself later Then Christopher Lee finds great joy in that. Dart's an interesting character. You know, he plays, plays the, the Harlequin, the original Harlequin. I thought it was a, a really odd choice when they brought Dart back later in the movie. He steals Eric's horse and he goes off. I mean, my mind, yeah, okay, he's done. But he ends up going back to, to Count Drago's castle and then, of course, stumbles upon the witch who is very indifferent to him. I mean, she's helpful to the others, but I think so she knows who this, this guy is not a good guy and she just is very dismissive of him. And they bring Dart back and then, then they kill him practically right away. You know, Sandra comes along and kills him. It was just, it was, that whole scene is like, well, why did we even have him back? It's just in order to, I guess, finally kill him off. I didn't need that. You know, he rode off on the horse and was like, he's done. 
it didn't serve a purpose that I'm aware of as to why they would have killed him off. I mean, it didn't play a part in anything else really later on, because I mean, I think right after that, we see Sandro digging a hole and that's it. You know, it's like, that, that was odd. That, that was an odd choice. They needed someone else to kill. And that does give the plot point of then that's someone else they're looking for because she sees him peering in the window and knows he's lurking around. Yeah. But, but I yeah. think that's about the part I, where I thought it was really dragging. Sandro, speaking of him, is played by Mirko Valentine or Valentine. Well, before you go there, let's not skip Dart because he's one of my favorites. I love any time we can talk about him. That was Luciano Pagosi, the Italian Peter Lorre. <laughs> he definitely had the Peter Lorre look. I don't know why. I just I see him and I immediately... He, I, this is weird, but a lot of time in these Euro horror, even though it might be the same women, I don't always recognize him for some reason. Like, I can't say, oh, yeah, she was in this movie or that movie. But I see Luciano and I'm like, ah, the Italian Peter Lorre. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you have other movies that he's been in? Because I know I've seen him in stuff as well. Oh, so. gosh. Um, I did. Oh, because I was going to. We've talked about one of them. Um, I think uh, Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory. Yeah, yeah, he's got to look. I'm the same way. I think sometimes it's easier for me to recognize the men in the Euro horror movies because the women uh, well, oftentimes are very beautiful. They're also very interchangeable <laughs> and generic looking yeah. in, in a way. I mean, generic, beautiful, but generic, it's interchangeable. Absolutely. Which is not a bad thing, I guess, but it just oftentimes, I mean, when you look at their list of credits, not all the time, but a lot of times they don't have a lot of credits. I mean, they had their small window where they were making films and, and then that window closed. And that was that, I mean, with, the character of Laura uh, here is played by Gaia Germani, 21 credits. You know, that's all she had. Now, the only other notable one that I saw was Hercules in the Haunted World, which also has Christopher Lee. Yeah, sorry, I got us off track. Go back to Sandro, because I am interested in him. I thought he was terrific. And I was kind of surprised that he's one of those that doesn't have that many credits. Yeah, not a lot of credits, but he does have a couple of big ones. Uh, you know, Horror Castle, he's in that. He's in a couple of Hercules films. I think if you're making Euro films at this time, inevitably you're going to do a spy thriller at some point. You're, you're going to do a horror movie and you're going to do a Hercules movie. It seems like he was in Hercules against the barbarians and Hercules and the tyrants of Babylon. I have a selection of Hercules films. I got in one of those Mill Creek gladiator box sets. Uh, I believe I have Hercules and the tyrants of Babylon. I've not seen it. That is a subgenre that I have not, I don't have the time to get into, you know, the sword and sandal stuff, but I do have some. I want to backtrack a little bit, though, before we dive much more into the cast. I want to talk about kind of what was going on behind the scenes and some of the interesting things, because there's, they mentioned this in some of the extras, not a big budget for this film, uh, enhanced greatly because of the location. The Park of Monsters. Okay, is uh, the, that this is the one with the big stone monsters? Big stones, yes. This is in uh, Bamarzo, Italy, the Park of Monsters. All these weird, huge sculptures of mythical creatures end up playing a big part in several scenes of the movie, including the kind of cat and mouse chase scene between Sandro and, and Nick. Nick keeps kind of popping out of the type, you know, Sandro, Sandro, and keeps going back and forth. 
it's a fun scene. I think that, you know, it's these weird big stone statues that end up appearing several times during the course of the movie, uh, help it stand out. These statues were commissioned apparently in the 16th century by Bomarzo's Duke, Pier Francesco Orsini. So these things are ancient and very weird and very cool. The story was by uh, Paul Maslansky, who actually is probably more well-known today for something he did later on in his career. At the time, he produced She-Beast. He directed Sugar Hill in the 70s, but he became best known for Police Academy. He did all of the Police Academy films and the TV series, and apparently there is another Police Academy film that's, that's possibly being talked about on the horizon, a remake or a reboot. The world clearly needs more Police (laughs) Academy films. Warren Kiefer met the producer, Paul Maslansky. Warren Kiefer did the screenplay. Paul Maslansky did the story with Warren Kiefer. Warren Kiefer became friends with Donald Sutherland. And that, of course, leads to why Donald Sutherland eventually named his son Kiefer Sutherland. named after Warren Kiefer. So they all kind of knew each other. You've also got to throw into the mix, you've got Michael Reeves who was second unit director earlier on in his career. The film was directed by Warren Kiefer and Luciano Ricci, who was billed as Herbert Wise. He was the assistant director. It was mostly Warren Kiefer doing this. So you've got a lot of connections behind the scenes that led to Donald Sutherland. I'm I'm here. I'll play this character. I'll play that character. I'll play this character. Donald Sutherland, this was early on in his career, this was his right. first movie, his first full yeah. movie. Right. So right after this, he does films like Dr. Terror's House of Horrors in 65, Die, Die, My Darling, 199 credits as we speak, still going strong at the age of 86, still making films. So he, he will surpass the 200 mark here probably in the next uh, year or so. The large part of the budget actually went towards Christopher Lee. He was the one real well-known person at this point come in and play the lead role of Count Drago. Taking a look at like some of the rest of the of the cast, Philip Leroy playing Eric, who is the, the new guy. Lots of European films. I didn't recognize any, any title that stood out. Jacques Stani as Bruno, who was the, the boss who ends up getting inadvertently killed. 83 credits, mostly European films. A few that stood out. I believe, fall into the giallo genre. Correct me if I'm wrong. Cat of Nine Tales in 71 and Four Flies on Gray Velvet in 71. These are a couple of titles that I recognized. And then, of course, uh, Nick the Dwarf played by Antonio Di Martino. Only did five films. The only other one that really stood out to me, he plays an elf in The Christmas That Almost Wasn't in 66, which is a film that I think I've mentioned on this show before, it's a film I have kind of a guilty pleasure for. It's a low-budget European kids musical. (laughs) I picked it up a few years ago, and it has a weird charm to it. And now that I know that he plays the elf, now I've got to be looking for that, Derek. I'm going to have to watch it this season. I think we've seen it once with Carla, and Carla's probably going to be groaning in the background. I was like, oh, dear God, not that movie again. When he was cast... It was funny. I think this was Paul Maslansky was talking about it. When he cast the role, he kind of just put the word out. I need a dwarf for a film. And when he showed up, it was like, 
he was on a, a, a second story apartment. Then the only way to get to it was up a flight of stairs. He didn't stop to think how complicated that might be for a dwarf to like have to climb up a flight of stairs. And he relates the story. I think he like, you know, there's a knock at the door and he looks, there's nobody there. And then there's Antonio down and, uh, you know, and he looks like he's about ready to have a heart attack because he's just climbed Mount Olympus to get there. Uh, ends up getting the part, thankfully. And that's that's a good extra to watch on this Blu-ray is the interview with Paul Metlensky. He does a, a, a lot of tidbits and stuff behind the scenes, not just Castle Living Dead, but kind of also talks about other aspects of his career. Some of the things that stood out to me in the movie, uh, this, besides the statues, the one line of where Count Drago is talking about the eternal theater. He's got this really morbid tourist trap-like expecting Chuck Connors to pop up behind the corner here any minute setup where, you know, all these victims are playing a part in his eternal theater. The post-Napoleonic uh, setting I thought was interesting. I kind of worked, you know, I, I thought that that was really kind of a, an interesting time period to, to set it in. And I thought that the imagery of the, the, the dead wife was creepy. And it's up to that point, you know, it's kind of like you get this idea that Count Drago is just kind of this maybe mad scientist type. He's got this plan. But then when you see his wife, it kind of shifts gears a little bit. It's like, yeah, he's kind of a mad scientist type. But now you're crossing over into this other territory where, yeah, he he's crazy. He devolved into some dark territories. He's taken his mad scientist role. And, and unfortunately, that's led him down a path where he's kind of lost touch with reality a little. And now we see him as not just being a mad scientist who's kind of overly passionate in his work, we see him as being really somebody that that is kind of crazy and, and dangerous at this point. Interesting that, you know, Sergeant Paul thinks the world of, of Count Drago and how, you know, it thinks the gypsies are the bad element. And really, he doesn't change his opinion until really the very, very end of the film, you know, and then tries to shift gears and and, and we get this this kind of humor thrown back into it at the very end of the film, which seemed a little odd placed without giving any details away about the ending, but how Sergeant Paul kind of says, oh, I, I saw this all the time. I thought that was odd. It, it, it seemed out of a little out of place. Yeah, that was weird. I didn't know if he was on the take from him, like he, he's the lord of the land, and you know, he's got to, or if he was getting kickbacks, you know, to to look the other way or... And then, yeah, at the end, when he says he knew all along, well, why didn't he do anything? That, that was weird. But I didn't get the feel that he knew. I think he just viewed the count as being this. Well, he first arrives when someone's been killed and he doesn't even want to look at the body or anything. He's, oh, you've taken care of it. That's fine. I can go. We'll see you next time. Yeah, I thought of it more as a I'm not going to bother the count with this kind of thing. It's like he's the count. The count's not going to do any wrong. I'm going to listen to the count. I suppose it could be perceived both ways. It could be that he maybe had an idea that something was going on, but was looking the other way, maybe. But I don't know, his bumblingness yeah. almost made me lean towards the nah, he just he's kind of clueless and he he doesn't want to bother the count because the count maybe intimidates him because he's a count. But gypsies, gypsies can do it because the gypsies are bad yeah. and they're a bad element. And you need to get rid of them. Get rid of them right away. And then he and <laughs> That's where Count Drago says, trust me, they shall all be gone by tomorrow. Yeah, and that goes in line with the beginning when we first see Sutherland. He's ridiculing them during the show in the public, in the village square. Yeah. 
being, and I don't think at that point I realized what he was. I thought, oh, he's a soldier that's returned. You know, I didn't realize he held a position and that was really inappropriate the way he was acting. I did not know back in the day when I watched it, that that was Donald Sutherland. I knew the witch looked weird and stuff. I did not have a clue. I didn't know until probably, honestly, maybe when I saw it 15 years ago, I think that's when I realized, I think I'd done a little bit of research. That was probably my first time knowing that Donald Sutherland played the witch character. Prior to that, I I don't think that I had ever really done it much research or looking up and realizing that he played multiple roles. I liked his portrayal of the witch, that whole thing. And then she ends up saving Nick as he gets like thrown off the, the castle at one point and conveniently lands on a nicely placed pile of straw. And it, you know, then Nick tries to, he has a few moments, right? I mean, he's, he's, you know, having the fight there at the top before he gets thrown off, he's kind of like holding his own a little bit, you know, before uh, Sandro throws him off. I'm going to backtrack real quick on Michael Reeves. He, of course, is the one that directed Witchfinder General a few years later. There's some discrepancy on what his participation was, I guess, between an interview with Christopher Lee, interviews with Kiefer, and just actually what happened, I guess. He, He did get the assistant director credit, but how much he actually shot, again, is a matter of uncertainty. I did learn something when reading about the Sherlock Holmes movie, because you'll notice there's two directors on that sometimes. And you said there were two directors on this, right? There's something about quotas. Like even though someone directed it, there were certain quotas that they would then add another person on, even though they may have not had anything with the film. So I don't know if that's in play here at all with Reeves or this other director, And then also, it's interesting to me, this was released in the UK by Tygon Pictures. And Tygon is kind of, you know, there's Hammer, there's Amicus, and then there's Tygon, which had a fraction of the output of those two. But they, this does technically, in my mind, make this a Tygon film. So that means it fits in with things like The Blood Beast Terror, Curse of the Crimson Altar, Blood on Satan Claw, and several other movies. The only other thing I had, I thought this was kind of interesting, was the fact that, you know, Christopher Lee did dub his voice, but he had to dub his lines reportedly from memory because there was like no record of the dialogue, which seems weird that like, wouldn't there be a shooting script or something? But apparently none of that was kept. And so when he was called back in to to dub his lines, he had to, to do it mostly from memory. It shows what a professional Christopher Lee was, that he would still remember all the lines that's it for Castle of the Living Dead? I think so. I, I, you know, go on record right now and say it's my favorite of the three, fueled by nostalgia. Not my first time viewing it. It's nice to see a really good print, and it's nice to get the extras. And not my favorite, but I eagerly look forward to a second viewing where I will like it much more. So in 1965, then, Lee made some familiar movies, The Skull, Terror of the Tongs. He went to Ireland and made Face of Fu Manchu. And he moved back to England, moved his residence to England in April of 65. Here he made movies that we're familiar with, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. I say we're familiar. I don't think I was familiar with Theater of Death. Are you? No. Uh, 66 rolls around. He makes Circus of Fear, which was financed in Germany right back to back with another Fu Manchu movie, Brides of Fu Manchu. He had a cameo in Five Golden Dragons. He went to Hong Kong to make that. 
That was filmed back to back with the vengeance of Fu Manchu. Went to Madrid, made a movie called The Face of Eve. Went to Rio de Janeiro to make The Blood of Fu Manchu. That was all of 66, a very busy year. Six films there. He really needed to get out more often back then, (laughs) I think. He was a homebody. 67, he did an episode of The Avengers. And he made Night of the Big Heat with Peter Cushing. And then ended the year that summer making our next movie, The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism. Rich, there's a gap here, sort of. We jumped uh, several years there between those two movies. And that always spawns the question, what was going on in 1967? (laughs) I try to focus on December of 67 because the movie was released, as we'll talk about here shortly, in October of 67, we're recording this in December. And of course, December 9th, 1967 was the date of my birth. How convenient is all of that? We had some interesting things going on. I bet you you wouldn't have a clue what the number one movie in the box office was the week of December 9th. Gone with the Wind. Wow. It was in its re-release. It was back back in the day when movies would get re-released, at, you know, especially the big epics. It was a huge deal, right? This was the time before you could, you know, see them regularly on television, uh, long before VHS and Blu-ray and streaming. So when a movie like Gone with the Wind got re-released, it was a big deal. And it was actually number one in the box office for eight consecutive weeks. Hmm. It made a a ton of money during this time period. This was about right in the middle of its uh, run. Movie tickets were a lot cheaper back then, $1.25. I can't even imagine movie tickets that price now. That would be awesome. December of 1967, Jim Morrison of The Doors was arrested on stage for disturbing the peace. I believe that may have happened more than once for Mr. Morrison. (laughs) On the cover of the December 8th Life magazine was Pearl Bailey. Of course, 1967, we had the Summer of Love, so now we were leaving the Summer of Love behind. We were dealing with Vietnam. We were dealing with protests. In the year of 1967, we had race riots breaking out in Cleveland and Newark and Detroit. A sad example, again, of seems like we just don't learn from the past, do we? Popular songs in the U.S. the week of December 9th, we had... Daydream Believer by the Monkees. Some of these choices are interesting. The Monkees, of course, just officially did their last concert together a few weeks ago. The last two surviving members, Mickey Dolenz and Michael Nesmith, reunited for a brief two-month tour. Hmm. They included a stop here in, in Kansas City. And I saw some highlights online, and you know, Michael Nesmith's getting getting up there in years. Not a very lively person kind of on the line of what Phil Collins is doing for Genesis right now. And Mickey Dolan's had to have the lyrics to the songs right there in front of him. So God love him. The monkeys uh, finally calling it quits. Mickey Dolan's apparently will continue to perform. Michael Nesmith is, is officially retired. Also popular songs were incense and peppermints by strawberry alarm clock soul man by Sam and Dave. And the top song in the UK was hello. Goodbye by the Beatles. Beatlemania is happening this year with the release of the new Peter Jackson documentary, Get Back, which I watched this past week. Excellent. Beatles were very popular in 1967. Magical Mystery Tour was released on December 8th. And the Magical Mystery Tour was the cover 
of the December 14th issue of Rolling Stone, which was actually only issue number three. Issue one had been issued Mm. the previous month with John Lennon on the cover of it. So he was on the first two of the three covers of Rolling Stone. Also released on December 8th was Their Satanic Majesty's Request by the Rolling Stones. If you were wondering who the uh, Italian prime minister was in 1967, it was Aldo Moro. The German chancellor was Kurt Keisinger. The UK prime minister was Harold Wilson. And the US president was Lyndon B. Johnson. I know I did not write down what the price of gas was (laughs) in Italy. I should have done that. Popular TV shows of the day uh, included The Monkees and The Fugitive. This is where we had to stretch it just a wee bit, but... Star Trek was in its second season on television. That's the only Star Trek reference I could come up with. Doctor Who was in its fifth season in the fall of 1967. And Dark Shadows, I gave this to you as well, was in its second year on the year in 1967. That's about the only references I've got for those three shows. That's what was happening in 1967. Fantastic. As always, thank you for that little slice of history. A human being so horribly slaughtered in the dungeon of doom. Grisly sacrifices for a maniac's vengeance. Men without souls whose artificial blood keeps their cruel brains alive. See just how far maniacal mistreatment go. It's a new bizarre shocker in the master of the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe. Christopher Lee in his greatest horror role since Dracula. When the dead Count's mangled body rises for its coffin, a new siege of the sinister starts. I needed the blood of 13 women. I found 12. They struggled against death. It was that desire to live. It's far out, fantastic and frightening. The creeping, crawling terror that haunts those marked for diabolical disaster. Here's the thrills of more than a dozen horror movies all rolled into one. Nobody will ever escape from the blood demon. We dare you to keep watching the screen. 35 years after Count Frederick Regula is drawn and quartered in the village square, Roger Montelis and Baroness Lillian von Brabant receive invitations to a mysterious castle that may or may not really exist. After a treacherous journey, they learn they're now participating in a deadly game of survival within the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism. Well, well, look what crawled into the crypt. In this movie, we've got spiders, we've got snakes, we've got scorpions, we've got vultures. Why wouldn't we also have Steve Turek? And the terrifying Milo right there, that alone. Oh, my goodness. Hello, hello, hello. And Milo is not terrifying. He's no magnificent Milo, the marvelous Milo. He's well, my Steve. support animal that helps me watch movies. 
Tell us, Steve, seriously, we appreciate you taking time. We know you've been very busy lately. What in particular of your projects would you like to tell everyone about? Well, I do the Diecast movie podcast, as you and you both you guys have been guest hosts on that on different episodes. I believe, Jeff, you were on that wonderful The Pirate movie one, you know, one of the few musicals that we've done so far. And Richard, and also you were also both on It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Yes. And Rich, of course, has been on Beastmaster and The Seventh Seal, which is European movie and of course we're doing you guys are talking about european type movies today so i mean what a, what a gateway to it but our the episode that'll come out just before your episode i have an interview that i'll be putting out with marley renfro who was in psycho she was in the shower scene so i'll be continuing on with the james well retrospective series with both you guys have been on uh for various episodes of that we'll be continuing on with the old dark house that's been a, a great series Yesterday, as we record this, finally made it through the initial start with your interview that kicked off the series. And you're not just sticking with the horror films, you're going with films outside the the horror genre, which is, uh, I've said this before, what I really enjoy about about your particular podcast is that we stay in in a format and we love our format you dabble a little bit here and a little bit there, and that gives you uh, some freedom to do some different things. And this particular retrospective you're doing over the course of multiple months with a variety of different perspectives, that's a good take. It's an interesting take. It's something different, something fresh. I'm looking forward to the rest of the films in the series. And Steve, you are also now known as the Joan Rivers of podcasting because you have been guest hosting Monster Kid Radio for four episodes. Let me tell you, you have had some fantastic guests with you. Oh, yeah. Alistair Hughes has been wonderful. I mean, he, he can't really say much about his knowledge of Hammer films. And, and then there's these other two guys, you know, Jeff and Rich both helped out, helped me help Derek out with Monster Kid Radio as he was um, unpacking from his recent move and trying to get everything situated. I did four consecutive episodes for him. So that way there's content to put out and that kind of stuff. You know, what are friends for? And you guys are helpful in that part where I think we did three Hammer films and the Atomic Submarine. These are the damned Frankenstein, the monster from hell and scars of Dracula. Interestingly enough, when you're talking Hammer, Dracula and Frankenstein films, those aren't like the immediate go-tos, right? I mean, those, those aren't usually on the top of, of everyone's list. So it's kind of, and I would say these are the damned also is, is not necessarily a, a, a go-to hammer film, different, lesser talked about hammer films, maybe getting a, a good take. And then there's Jeff who did the atomic submarine that just doesn't fit into the, to the theme at all, but you know. <laughs> well, I think it does fit into the theme and that these are lesser known movies. To the general pop- population yeah, or I was giving him a hard time. I was giving him a hard time. I've never seen the Atomic Submarine, I don't believe. Well, what's stopping you? <laughs> it's not on my collection. <laughs> it, I, it's I on YouTube. It. It's on YouTube. You oh, okay. You obviously well, didn't listen to the episode. You would have known because we talked about it being on YouTube. I have not caught up <laughs> to that point. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm perpetually behind courtesy of... Uh, prolific people like uh, Mr. Turek, who just keeps cranking out great stuff, though. And that's the thing. It's like, I don't want to overlook anything because he does so many cool interviews with people that normally aren't talked to and talk about things they normally don't talk about. I think it's going to be cool to hear your take on 
the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism, which is our third official movie on the show today. West German release, October 5th, 1967. It was written by Manfred R. Kohler. It's from, actually, I'd forgotten this, the story The Pit and the Pendulum by Edgar Allan Poe, directed by Harold Reinel. Like Rich yeah. said, released October 5th, 1967, but then it was released a couple years later in the States as The Blood Demon on May 21st, 1969. And Steve, I don't know if you're aware of this, and listeners, I'm sorry for repeating a joke, but... This is available on Blu-ray. It's in that new Severin set, the Eurocrypt of Christopher Lee. There's a Severin set? Eurocrypt? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I'm gonna order it right I'm gonna order it right away. You know, it's a shame I missed that 50% off sale. <laughs> so being the guest, Steve, usually this is the time I say, Rich, what did you think of it? But you're our guest. Steve, have a first take at it. What did you think of the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism? Well, it's the second time I've seen it. And I saw it once about a year or so ago. I own the York, the Euro Crypt type thing. So I was watching it again. And it's also available on Amazon Prime and YouTube for listeners that don't have it that want to see it. It's it, so it's readily available. Decent print on both of those. I like it. I mean, I, I enjoyed it very much. It's one of my favorite films to watch in a sense out of this collection. And it was I like the music, I like the acting, I like the whole story structure that was set up christopher lee could have been utilized a little more but then again there's a lot of movies where christopher lee is brought in for just a couple of days and uh, you're using his name recognition to help get the film out there it's just a wonderful film it had a nice little bit of humor in with it with the scary atmosphere production values seem to be very good from my point of view so I, I enjoyed it very much all right rich you want to go next i will visually there was some great, the shot of the wagon, you know, and the, and the sunset, I guess yeah, that was a great shot. Visually, I want to say that in a lot of ways, this might be the highlight of the box set. We should note that this is in color. The, the previous movies have been black and white. Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism is probably out of all the movies in this box set, probably the one that's been the most readily available, even though it's never been the best quality version available we're getting a much better one now and i've said this on other films but i'll say this this is um, a 4k scan for the original german negative uh and of course the, there's a lot of extras that are featured along with all the other films in the set i agree would have been nice to see a little more christopher lee but i think his role of count frederick regula was uh entertaining i think he was good in it I liked seeing Lex Barker as the character of Roger Montelis because I'm a Tarzan fan. I haven't seen my Tarzan movies in years, but he was in five Tarzan films between 49 and 53, and which led me to some interesting stuff about Lex Barker that I'll talk about when we get to that point that I didn't know about Lex Barker. He kind of had this Euro renaissance around this time period, but there was a reason why he went to Europe. I thought the story was good. The Poe connection, stretching it a little bit, probably more of a Poe connection than other films that you will see pop up and say, based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe. And I'm like, what? There's a black cat in the corner and that that's the Poe connection. This one, at least we had the pit, you know, and the pendulum and there was some stuff going on, or I guess not really much of a pit, but the pendulum, at least. I love the wall paintings made to resemble 
Hieronymus Bosch. Very cool. I did have a problem with some of the music, though. It, it seemed a little uneven. Some of it, at times, felt almost like grocery store music. I, I don't know why. I just kind of felt like I was in the 1970s grocery store. Uh, nowadays, you go in the grocery store and you're hearing all this 80s music. I laughed the first time I heard Super Freak by Rick James, and I'm like, I'm in a grocery store listening to Super Freak. This is bizarre. This sounded like old school elevator music almost at times. And there was also a little bit of a jovialness to it. Carla, for example, said this kind of sounds like a drive-in ad music and that there you know, should be like little dancing hot dogs or pickles or something. Other times it was much more atmospheric and, and, and more fitting. I don't know if you guys noticed that or not. It stood out to me a couple of times. It kind of pulled me out of the moment a little mm-hmm. bit. The only other thing that really stood out to me is that, I mean, this does kind of come across as a bit of a, almost like a dreamlike state at times. It's, did this really happen? Did it not happen? You kind of get that feel towards the end of the movie. At the beginning of the movie, though, I was surprised for a movie with the title of The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, that when the mask is put on Christopher Lee's face, that we didn't see more blood. Yeah. I'm like, that was the perfect opportunity to have something happen because there would have been something streaming down. You would think it was like jammed onto his face and we didn't see that. That to me was seemed as like an odd choice not to do that. But I liked the movie. Uh, I did enjoy it. And I thought it was uh, it was fun from beginning to end. Some of the location shots in the village uh, I enjoyed. There's an extra uh, on the Blu-ray where they go back to the locations and do a compare and contrast. I always love that. Mm-hmm. It's especially interesting when you go and watch European settings because nine times out of 10, they still look the same. Americans have a, a way of like, oh, this building's 20 years old. Let's go ahead and tear it down and put a shopping mall up. What about you, Jeff? What did you think of it? Well, I got to go third, so I just have to repeat everything you all said, except I'm ignoring the parts where you guys didn't like it because I, I loved it. This is a gorgeous movie. I tried to find out who was responsible. I couldn't find who the cinematographer was. So, you know, I don't even, I don't know that. But whoever, I just think it was gorgeous. The, the scene you mentioned with the wagon going across and yeah. the grass is just lush green and the sky is just like orange. I mean, it almost looks like it's painted which contributes to that sort of surreal thing that you mentioned, you know, is it happening? Is it not? Do you guys think the interiors were like mostly sets? These other two movies were filmed obviously in the actual castle or in the ruins. To me, it looked like a lot of this, they were sets. And obviously some of them were because there were trap doors and there were cubby holes and and things like that. But just, they didn't look bad. I'm not saying that they look like sets, but I'm just saying this is more of the artistry of this movie. I thought they were beautiful. I thought the colors were great. So creative. I mean, walls with skulls built into them and, you know, little booby traps and little, like I said, cubby holes and these creatures running around. There's just like a lot of detail to that that I really enjoyed visually. And then those details carry over to little things in the story that I just think someone paid attention to that because they don't normally just happen. So, for example, the vultures are gnawing on something in the hallway of, of the crypt, and it's about as gory as we see in this movie. Fine. But then the fact that he picks her up and carries her so she doesn't have to step in it, that's like a detail that they don't usually add. I liked the makeup much better than in our last movie, Rich. I thought the sort of bluish green pallor to his face uh, was really good. I liked that. 
I like the pendulum and I don't know how long it's been since you've read Pitt and the Pendulum, but it's remarkably faithful. The actual story is only the guy in the pit with the pedals, no backstory or anything. And, yeah, you know, the true. fact that there were rats there and I guess he didn't actually like try to get them to eat his ropes, but at least they were there and then him maneuvering. And I have seen this before and I had forgotten that part of it. And then just finally, like there's real suspense in this and it doesn't show you his arms and legs being pulled out of him when he's drawn and quartered but it shows the horses taking off and it raising his body and then it cuts. And I think that's perfect because we don't have to see that gore, but we can imagine it. And then to follow it up in the next scene with the guy telling that story, 35 minutes later, there's a drawing of a stick figure with his arms and legs. I mean, it's, I did like the scene where we see his body in, in the case and then the, the arms and legs kind of reattach themselves I really liked it. As far as the music, I thought the exact same thing. In fact, in my notes, I put that it ended with elevator music. It didn't bother me, though. And that's, I think, a characteristic of your horror that we didn't talk about too much in this episode was that a lot of times it's a hodgepodge of music. I don't know. The one movie had the soundtrack with it, so I'm sure that's an original score. But a lot of times it's a piece of music from this movie, this movie, this movie put together. I don't know what the situation was here. It didn't bother me. It didn't take me out of the movie like it did you. What, what did you think of the music, Steve? I was fine with the music, especially when I was getting to the more suspenseful scenes. I thought the music picked up nicely. I agree with both of you that the, the, the very end when they're going off, the, the music kind of tailed off there. But then again, I'm so used to seeing films from the 60s and 70s, especially Kung Fu movies or those things where they just they give a little certain like music thing and boom, it goes right to the end. It doesn't bother me because the movie's over at that point. So it has no effect to me one way or the other how it's going to do it. But the movie during music, I enjoyed the artwork that was done with the different murals. I thought it was fascinating to see. and almost wish I could see I mean, when you want to freeze frame it or wish you had a, a picture still of it. That was nice, nice size that you can yeah. look at and just to take in the details because whoever did that mural had, had you know, really caught the craziness of the satanic type the things that the count was going through and putting it up there and i thought that was really fascinating it makes me wonder who the artist was artists that came up with that concept to go for it the settings i agree with you jeff sometimes the same hallway scenes were used or the same corridor scenes were being utilized so i don't think they had a run of a castle except for exterior it felt claustrophobic at times in some of the scenes. Rich, when you talked about there not being a pit, you know, with the pit yeah. and the pendulum, he did have a There was a pit because he went through the trap door that led him to go down there. That's true. So, yeah. So and Jeff me, is right, a- too. The real story of Pit and the Pendulum really doesn't have that. It's it's the takes place in the prison cell. And so I forget that version because you immediately go to like Vincent Price. Vincent Price, which is actually really not a good adaptation. And I like how he used the stone in order to free himself from the pin and the pendulum. And yeah. it was a nice wrinkle of somebody thinking, because he was a lawyer, so he's used to be thinking more logically and not getting uh, caught up in the moment, keeping his head on his shoulders, that kind of stuff. My favorite character, though, was Vladimir Medar, who played Peter Fabian. He was wonderful. He brought in gusto. He brought in energy. He brought in humor. He was a combination of swashbuckler, comedian, 
thrown in the one that really kept the movie when it was doing exposition type things or where there's not really much happening. He kept things moving along at a crisp pace. And I think if you were to remove that character and that actor, particularly from the film, it, it would be a huge loss in the film. He was a very good supporting actor that did really justice to the movie. I was so happy with his character. I really, really liked his portrayal. And it's, it's somebody I want to seek out and see him in other work just to get an idea. Of, was that one time or is that the normal way he'd do some acting skills and that kind of stuff? But I really, really, I thought he was stealing the film. Did you get his little twist? Did you figure that out? I didn't. And I, and I've seen it twice. <laughs> I still didn't. I forgot that that <laughs> happened in the carriage when they hit a bump and he like lands on the woman. And then the way he's just looking at her and giggling, I thought, wow, that's odd for a priest to be acting that way. But I didn't think that he wasn't really a priest. What else has he done? I, I, I didn't pull up the IMDb on him to see he, the whole movie though, I'm sitting there thinking I've seen him in something else. It plagued me. I neglected to to search that, you know, when I did my research to see what else he had done. Castle of the Creeping Flesh. Oh, that we probably just that's, saw him in that. Yeah, that's it. Cause we just watched that a couple months ago. Yeah. Okay. So you talk about wanting to see movies he's in. I'd like to see other movies from this director. Uh, I looked up some of his. He made The Carpet of Horror, which sounds intriguing. I've not seen it. I have that on my DVR. Oh, really? Huh. I've never heard of it. The the Strangler of Blackmore Castle and The Sinister Monk. Those all sound interesting. I don't think I've ever heard of any of those. So I'd like to see those. Karen Dorr, who plays the uh, uh, Baroness, she's also in Carpet of Horror. Of course, anybody that's a James Bond fan has seen Karen Dorr in a movie, You Only Live Twice. You Only Live Twice, yes. And stating the obvious, Christopher Lee's been a James Bond yes. movie as well. <laughs> Let me just talk real quick about the cast. A couple of other people in this film. Steve, as I've been saying in this episode, I don't recognize a lot of the European titles. So some of these you know, people may have done like the, the Citizen Kane of Italy, and I'm not going to recognize the title. I'm looking for titles that that we know them from. For example, Christiane Rucker plays the character of Babette, and she's in Frankenstein's Castle of Freaks from 74, which I've seen. It's not a great movie. I think I've got the Elvira's Movie Macabre DVD version. I think that may be a double feature, if I recall, with Nashi's Count Dracula's Great Love. It's better than that movie, but it's not a great movie. And then going with Lex Barker a little bit, he was this big time Hollywood star, right? I mean, he becomes the new Tarzan and and he succeeds Johnny Weissmuller and does five films and barrel chested and just looking the park. He was married to Lana Turner. And in uh, 1957, the marriage ended after her daughter from a previous marriage Although this wasn't made public at the time, but apparently accused Lex Barker of molestation, Lana Turner ends up, and she, I should say the daughter was 13, Lana Turner apparently kicked him out of the house at gunpoint. But when they filed for divorce, there was never any police charges filed, never anything was ever said in the divorce proceedings, and it didn't become public until some 15 or 13 years, give or take, after his death, the daughter comes forward and says, well, this is what happened. 
course, Lex can't defend himself at that point. So I, in that kind of a case, as we've talked before, you got to take that with a grain of salt, considering that he also left Hollywood. The divorce and the rumor mill is kind of what ruined his, his Hollywood career. But he found success over in Europe and continued to, to make films over there. Ultimately, did come back to Hollywood for the end of his career. But he did do a couple of, of uh, Mabuse films, The Return of Dr. Mabuse and The Invisible Dr. Mabuse from 61-62, which were also directed by that Harold Reinald. Lex Barker's last role was in an episode of Night Gallery in 72. He died of a heart attack in 1973 at the age of 54. I think we've been talking some Fu Manchu. Karen Dorr was in Face of Fu Manchu. And screenplay writer Manfred R. Kohler uh, also wrote The Blood of Fu Manchu and Daughters of Darkness, which I think is a movie you're familiar with, Jeff, as something that you really like that film. I love that. I think it was the most widely available at the time of its release. Uh, It was paired up in a double feature with the odd double feature, The Mad Doctor of Blood Island under the title Blood Demon and then in some markets, blood had to be taken out of the title, as we talked about earlier, and it became, I think, Red Demon or Crimson Demon or something nonsense like that, which to me doesn't have anything really to do with the movie much. Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism tends to fit the movie a little better, although I was going to say that earlier. The title, I don't know that it fits the movie. A Torture Chamber, I guess, and they could have come up with a better title. I don't know if you guys think the same. The torture chamber of Count Regula? I don't know. I don't know. It was sensationalism, right? I mean, it, it certainly was going to, ooh, Christopher Lee in the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism. It's going to get people in the theater. I don't know. So I got a couple questions for you guys. I was waffling on this. So the character of Anatole is a pivotal character. In fact, he's really the one doing a lot of the things while Christopher Lee is still asleep. I don't even know if... Lee stepped out of that one set, even when he's awake, he's sending Anatole to do things. So that actor, Carl Lang, was okay. But could you imagine the actor that played uh, the henchman in the previous movie, if they had switched roles, I think he would have been much better because this is, a he was pretty nondescript. I mean, he just looked like a man. I mean, yeah. clean shaven, head, haircut. Yeah, he was, I guess, the living dead, but he didn't much look the part. And I think it could have been more fun to have a more creepy scary looking guy be any thoughts on that steve that face that he has some people just have certain looks once you see him you know right away that's the role they're meant for i think you and i talked about this when we did the atomic submarine some people were just cast to be because they look like an authoritarian figure or they look like a politician in this case that guy looked like a henchman you know or, or somebody who's going to be doing nefarious deeds and you just can't help it. You're never going to picture him as the good guy, even though he could be the nicest, greatest person in real life. It's just the way, sadly, how, you know, people have stigmas on looks and, and value. You know, something, somebody looks not to the norm, then they automatically think something lesser of them. And they give people that have that, that beautiful look more privilege than they should probably possibly have because it hasn't been earned. And that's just the way, you know, society has been ingrained for a long time. I don't think it's, it's something that'll take forever to write that ship or whatever. But yeah, I think he, if he would have been cast, 
I think if he's cast as anybody's henchman or whatever, I think it augments the film. It could have been two of them for all I know, but in a sense, there were two guys that set this up because there's the one guy near the castle grounds, as you brought up, Carl Long, or Anatole, but there was also the um, the guy with the peg leg. Mm. Yeah, what I wasn't sure what, I mean, he was in the village from the very beginning and he gave the invitation, but then, spoiler alert, he's found later dead in the castle. I wasn't really clear what his relationship was to anyone. It was never spelled out. I'm just assuming he was given money and said, hey, sure. when these people come back, you go and give it to them. And and uh, he probably came back to collect. And, uh, you know, it's just like a typical bad guy thing. He he got his collection, right? Yeah. Go step in there. Would you, your reward is in the other room. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. you got to love how your guy, Fabian, uses his peg leg as a tool to build steps to climb the wall. That was great. He's MacGyver. He's the MacGyver <laughs> of the movie. I mean, he, he, the rogue qualities of him, being the leader of a highwayman and all this stuff. He's, you tell he's the leader. He comes up with the priest ID. He sees, he sees that he can't climb out of this thing. He sees it when he lit the fire or lit the thing to smoke. He followed the smoke. And I love how he did it and to see where it went. And he looks up and he sees, hey, I can fit through that because he's not exactly a small guy which makes guys like myself, and I'm sure Rich will happy. The action stud is not exactly like Johnny Weissmiller and Bill. It's like, yeah, you go, man. You, you yeah. show. <laughs> we come on all sizes. And that's and the kind the of... Peg, like, it, does, it works his way up. I, I thought it was brilliant. It was, yeah. it was brilliant. That's why I said he's, he's the, he steals the movie. He's the and hero. that's the kind of details I'm talking about that I think are unique because in any number of other movies, he'd break the door down and get out. I, I just thought it was so intricate and clever. And, and then my other one that brings me to my other question. So the, the plot was when he was alive, Count Regula killed 12 women. He needed the blood of 13 women. And that's when he was apprehended and, and put to death. So, you know, he's, he brings them into the castle. He's going to use Lillian for the 13th woman. But she doesn't have enough fear in her for the blood to be effective. So they put her through this, the ringer of this house of horrors, you know, to get, to get fear in her. What did you all think of that little extra thing? I enjoyed it. I thought it added atmosphere to the film and it, it fit, you know, you want to show more scares. You want to show the heroine being disturbed, different things. And this gave him an eye. This gave him a, like, let's throw this at her. Let's throw that at her and, and, and added that thing. And I think really, I don't know how far you want to go in this film and spoil the ending or whatever, but. It has a dreamlike quality to it, which could be what is this all going on in in certain ways. And, you know, maybe that's why some people were able to escape, but it's weird to have a dream with four people in it, you know, going on and all having the same experience. Yeah, that dreamlike surreal quality is at the end of the film. It's not necessarily giving anything away. It's just, it's one of those, did it happen? Did it not happen? Left up to interpretation, however you want to want to see it right before we we get the final kissing scene and then let's enter the the grocery store music as we as we fade out. Now you kind of lost me on that. So what do you mean for people having the same dream? Why couldn't that have been one person's dream? Why couldn't have that just been Lillian's dream? Is it because she wasn't in all the scenes? There was stuff happening without her? Correct. Okay. Correct. And they all seem they all seem to understand exactly what was yeah. went down. Yeah. They understood. So, but, yeah, it was that- but technically there would have been five people in the dream one never made it all the way through. He never even made it to the castle. And that was the coachman. Yeah. So it's, 
Well, you could say that the dream scared him to death. I mean, I don't know. I really don't personally buy the dream sequence type stuff. I think it was really a ghost story type quality to it. So that would lead to the craziness of different hallways and passages. It's a ghost story. It's a ghost castle. The castle never really probably existed. It was all torn down. But because it was spiritually brought up by evil magic, whatever you want to look at it, that once it was destroyed, the castle disappeared and they were all there. So I really don't look at it as a dream sequence as, as a construct done by evil. We talk about the castle, but I'm guessing probably half the movie is the journey to the castle. And that is just amazing. And here's in one of those details, they're riding along in the carriage and they hit a bump. Well, that's not a bump. It's a body in the road, you know, and they look out the windows and there's all these human limbs hanging from the trees. Some of them even look like they're growing out of the trees. Like they are the branches themselves incredible i loved it yeah it was pretty creepy i would have turned around and, and, and gone back home <laughs> mode, you know it's like people you're it, this is not going to end well when i'm seeing limbs come out of trees it's 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 time for this boy to turn around and go back home i've seen enough films it's not going to end well well you got to remember back then they didn't have films rich they wouldn't have had this knowledge and two the coachman was you he wanted to go back yeah, he, he was basically forced by gunpoint to continue forward true, so yeah. it's either it's either die by what you know you can be killed from, the gun, or continue forward into the unknown. Just saying, Rich, you know, you, yeah. might, you probably still would have driven the carriage because you would have been thinking, you know, it's a uh, bird in the hand, two in the bush. He's got a bird in the hand. He's got a gun. Yeah, I'll take my chances. I, I know how this story is going to end. Maybe this one's going to be a little better than I anticipate. I'm just going to ignore the bodies and, and everything and, Wait for that nice little sunset shot, you know, and think, oh, okay, everything's good, you know. No, very atmospheric movie. I give it a thumbs up. Well, I watched all five of the movies in the collection. I'm going to put them in, in like kind of an order for me. And and the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism. I mean, that name is just going to put seats in the theater, Rich. If you're wondering why it's called that, who's counting regular? Nobody knows. Sadism. That sells. Because sex oh, yeah. sells, sadism <laughs> yeah, sells, it, it always yeah. sells. And yeah. this is a drive-in movie if I ever saw one. And I know you guys know your drive-in movies. You're a teenager, you're or, or early early twenties, and you're going for a drive-in flick. This is one you probably start watching, especially when you see well, the poster, the movie I'm poster. Say, yeah, when you got when you got a poster like that, that just says, "Come see me at the drive-in." And and that shot's in there, folks. So it's, it's really not. It's there. It's in the background. It is there. Yeah. It is there. So, so it's not one of those posters that bait and switch. So that easily, this was my favorite film. And, and, and by sheer happenstance, you guys told me coming for this one, I didn't ask for which movie I would be talking about. I left it up to sheer luck. You never know. You guys could pick the one I like the least or whatever. And then we could have an interesting discussion. Now, two, three, and four for me were so close together. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say it's the middle and it really depends on what mood I'm in is what order they'll be in. But I enjoyed all three of them. Castle of the Living Dead, I really enjoyed that one. Uh, I thought that it had a nice atmosphere to it. I liked the characters. I liked the way it was set up. I, I really I really thought it was a, a good thing. I was not expecting it to be taxidermy, you know, from the title, but it fit with the motif. And, uh, and of course, we just talked about Christopher Lee's henchman was perfect. I think they had a standard shot where he keeps coming up and the camera's lit a certain way and he has a certain look on his face. I wonder if they just did that once and just kept putting it in or whether they repeated yeah. it every time. I'd have to rewatch it again to see if the backdrop changes 
you know, behind them or if it's just something because he always had them coming that certain way and it works. I mean, it's, it's a great setup shot. So I, I really like it. It had a lot of different story elements going on with it. Had a, again, nice pacing. Good movie. Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace. I know you guys didn't talk about it yet. I enjoyed it. I probably would have, it might have been my number one if it would have been for Christopher Lee's voice being dubbed, yeah. but by an American voice. Weird to get to because Christopher Lee is prominently featured in this. He is Sherlock Holmes. His acting, you know, I'm judging by his body language and his motions, was good. I liked the way the script, I liked the way the, the direction was handled. I thought it was a nice, solid Sherlock Holmes film. Not one of the greater ones, not one of the worst ones, but it was solid. I just wish I could hear Christopher Lee's voice. That's the one thing. It's like, ugh. I think it, it might, if, if it would have been his voice, it might have been my number one. But I'm also a Sherlock Holmes fan. And that takes me to Challenge the Devil. Now, Challenge the Devil is an interesting thing. You guys did not talk about this film, I believe, at all. This one is subtitled. I think the director's only movie ever. This movie is just plain weird. I haven't figured out yet if it's weird, bad, or weird, good. And I like weird movies. I like 1977's House a lot, the Japanese Toho movie. So I enjoy weirdness in movies that you have to ponder. And sometimes it takes a day or two of reflection and the atmosphere and the imagery to hit you. And this movie has a lot of imagery, a lot of interesting concepts, in the movie with um, like a, not a hall of mirrors, but a hall of crystal where they're trying to get through this maze. It was very interesting how it was going through. Christopher Lee's character is in it for a little bit. I think out of the five films, this is probably the least amount of screen time that he has going off the top of my head. The concept is interesting. One of the characters seems to be his dialogue was, Laugh maniacally, laugh maniacally, because it seems like that's all he was doing. Either he was crying or he was laughing. He, he had very little actual dialogue to say, and it was it was a little bit weird. What are your guys' opinions? I am still trying to get, grasp this. I've, I've enjoyed the imagery a lot and, and the, the plot lines a lot, but I'm, I'm actually probably going to have to watch it again in a couple of months just to, to, to get an idea. This, this one intrigues me. Unbearable experience to watch it. I was texting Richard all through it. I thought it was horrible. It's these beatnik kids being stupid and long, interminable scenes that don't seem to have to do anything. And then there's this search for the Christopher Lee's wife somewhere in it, and they do encounter these weird things. Those scenes pulled out. It's creepy. It haunts you. And I'm with you on that. I just don't know if I can sit through it again for all the other stuff. I'm curious what the original cut looked like yeah because there's 30 minutes of the good stuff that was cut out the whole gangster setup i mean it's so bizarre right you start off with a gangster movie you have the monk and the joke about you know he's got the the good wine versus the bad wine or whatever and then we go to the cabaret the one gal who comes out and she does the final dance and they make a big deal about her and poor lady is past her prime it's so bizarre. You've got these really three weird musical numbers and then the monk, well, let me tell you my experience and what changed me. And then we go into the the original film. And then I, I knew that Christopher Lee didn't have a lot to do in this film. 
I, I kind of thought he might have a little more to do, but he, he got a good paycheck out of this, I hope. My least favorite out of out of the films in this set, and I will say, I'm not giving this one a second chance. <laughs> There's no second viewing for me on this one. What's number four for me? What's the bottom? This is, this is one I'm never going to watch again. I might watch it again, but it's just, I'm not really looking forward to it. That, that's Crypt of the Vampire. It was, it was a drag. I literally fell asleep during the movie in the mid in midday. Uh, it, it put me out. I mean, it, it's on that, when I say snooze fest, it literally TKO'd me. And then I, I came to 20 minutes later and then I had to go back to where I was. And I tell you, whatever I was dreaming, I think was better than when I had to rewatch. It's just, <laughs> and people talk about the climax being this, all oh, you got to make it to the epic climax. I'm thinking, yeah, because people are happy for two things. One, that it was ending. <laughs> and two, after the low expectations all failed, anything was good. <laughs> Rich left. Anything was going to be good. Now, having said that, there are good things in this movie. The, the, the cinematography is nice. I mean, it was, it's gorgeous. You know, the, the way they, they lit up everything and had the people, it was very well done that way. It's just the pacing was so <laughs> <laughs> The story structure, not the taking away the pacing thing, I like the story. It was a very predictable story. I mean, the ending was, was so obvious where it was going to go. I mean, it, it, it was just like, oh, it's heading this direction. Let's just get there. I think it just needed to be condensed down. If it would have been an, uh, how long was it? I can't remember off the top. How long do you guys remember how long the movie was? I can tell you it was 86, 85 minutes. 85 minutes. So I was thinking in my mind, right, if it would have been about an hour long, like a little more than an hour long episode, like a TV 90 minute movie, you know, where you have the commercials thrown in and you cut down. So it's an hour and 15 minute movie, an hour and 10 minute movie. I think then it would have flowed so nicely and it would have had a nice pace through it because there were certain things that was just like going, it was just dragging in that huh. middle. And I think if I was to watch it again, I would watch it the first part and then kind of like jump to other scenes and just, cause I know what's going to happen and just get that. And I think I'd have a better experience. The ending was nice. It was just, it was kind of obvious. I mean, it, where it was going to go. And Christopher Lee's role was interesting. He was neither the hero or the bad guy. He was, he was the count. He was the one who brought the, the hero into the picture. I, mean, I guess you could say he was the secondary hero because he was there at the end. But it was just kind of interesting how he's not the antagonist or the protagonist, is what I should be saying, in the movie. And it's kind of an interesting spot to put Christopher Lee in because I think in the other ones, he is either the antagonist or the protagonist. Not really. He's not really driving the plot. He's not really moving the things forward. And then you had the um, the two ladies making Google eyes at each other, and you could tell that this is a relationship that's going to go somewhere. And then that's when it dawned on me: oh, she's the evil one. It's it's a re it's a reversal. You know, it just hit me then. And then of course I was totally justified when she pulled out the the handkerchief to dab the, when she was unconscious and had the big K on it. I'm like, uh, this is this is where this is going. I can see that. So she's the bad guy or the baddie type thing. So it was at that point, it was just a matter of getting to the end part of it and who was going to live and who was going to die. And, and also sh her showing up now, now you, you realize she's the baddie and she gets dropped off by these other people. Why would that happen? 
you know, just, it's just like with the all, with the all like her followers or something. And somehow she got this team like, Oh, this is my, it doesn't make, there's, there's a lot of logical things that, and this, this is to a guy that's still trying to understand challenge the devil. So maybe take it a grain for <laughs> Maybe I'm an idiot. and can't <laughs> understand basic plot, but there are things here that make no logical sense. I'm going to point A to point B. It's just like, Oh, drop off. They could have had her arrive a different way and had her get set up that same way. She could have been walking along the trail and fainted and then they would have helped her. But no, she gets dropped off, but hope make this whole big thing of it. And then you never see those people again. Oh, they'll be coming back and we can go away with them. Her, maybe they were her minions. I don't know. It was never established, never talked about again. So that carriage at the end showed up from somewhere. I was entertained by three of the films greatly. One film, I'm still, the jury's still out. I haven't made the decision yet. The jury's still, it's a hung jury. <laughs> I'm going to have to do a retry. And, and there's one that the jury came in and the verdict is not something that you're happy with. <laughs> so let's talk theater macabre real quick. I think the addition of that in this set is awesome because I didn't even know it existed before this set came out. I had not heard of theater macabre. 71, 72, 24 episode series that was made in Poland and apparently did get released in the States. I don't think it got like on a major network. I think it was like syndicated. Christopher Lee serves as the host. He doesn't star in any of the segments, 25 minute segments. You know, Christopher Lee is, is he comes out, he's, he's got the, the great mustache and look and he does what he does and he just introduces the story. It's not a crisp, clear 4K restoration. I don't think they, for well, they say 2K for the original negatives. I think the fact the negatives probably aren't in 100% condition, but this still looks good. The audio isn't as sharp with, I think, Christopher Lee's introductions. It seems there's a difference between his audio seems a little, I don't want to say muffled, but not as sharp as the actual stories themselves. I saw three of the stories. I saw the first one about love American style, whatever that crazy (laughs) thing was. It was not enter- it was not entertaining. It, 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 that was plotting and not really much of a twist, not really, not in a macabre sense. But then we watched the vampire, which was later on, and I thought that was good. Dr. Tar and Professor Feather. I didn't like the way they handled the twist in that. It's a little different than the way that it should have been handled, but still not bad. I will watch the rest of these at some point. I'm glad that I have them, glad that they are on this set. It's it's cool that they have finally been released because they were apparently only available in, in bootleg copies and even then were hard to find, I guess. Again, I'd never heard of it. Steve, you watched one episode and Jeff, you watched the intros only. So Steve, what, what do you think about? Well, I watched, I believe it was the first one. It was called First Love. Yeah, and, that's it. And this was before I saw... Crypt of the Vampire, which probably did not help me going into Crypt of the Vampire. <laughs> and uh, you were was, already being a, lulled asleep. Exactly. You were already put into a, a coma before Crypt of the Vampire even started. You think something called Crypt of the Vampire? I thought I was going to be like a pick, you know, it was going to be a pick me up after First Love. And I'm thinking for a TV series to start off with that is episode one was a crazy choice. To do because as, as rich said it's he had to he had to jump around 
I don't know how to even fit theater macabre. I don't even know how it fit with the title of the series, let alone if I was a, if I was somebody, especially nowadays, when you want to watch something, you watch like one episode, you might watch a second one to give it a shot. But if, I think for a lot of viewers, if they were tuning in to watch that first episode, thinking something's going to be macabre, and they see that. Uh, it makes me nervous to see what some of the other episodes are. I went for the vampire and the Poe story. So I knew what I was getting there. It does make me a bit nervous. Some European authors, you've got Ambrose Bierce, you've got Robert Louis, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. So there's some well-known stories in there. You can have great stories, but if the directing and the acting are poor, it can hurt you. This one, I don't think it was the acting was poor. I think the set design was really done well. And it could be scripted. Well, it's just not the kind of movie I was, ex- or not movie, episode I was expecting to see. And so it's, you almost got that bait and switch type thing. It's like, oh, wait a minute, did I walk into the wrong movie theater? I was expecting to see Macabre. And now I feel like I'm in like Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now the intros though, I mean, Jeff, so you watch the intros. I mean, it's Christopher Lee being Christopher Lee introducing a story. So Yeah, I wanted to ask you what you guys thought of that because I thought they were pretty good. I, To be honest, sometimes those intros fall flat or they're just not very i thought i thought they were the ones i saw were very good i enjoyed them yeah i mean of the three that i saw they were entertaining i mean christopher lee comes out and does his thing and and introduces the story and then you know segues into it so i mean that honestly that's the pull for me to to watch the rest is to see christopher lee and then hope that you know some of the stories curiosity i didn't watch all the intros i like i always saw the first one i'm gonna watch the rest of them just because one, I own them. So I mean, it, but I figured after that first one, the one good no, thing. No, no, about no, the first Steve. It's perfectly fine to own things and never watch them. <laughs> what are you talking about? Jeff's got shelves full. <laughs> As do I. And, and, and both of you guys have DVRs filled with stuff you haven't watched yet. So yep. I mean, Jeff did a whole blog series on stuff just to clear yeah. his blog and only to refill it. I'm going to watch them, and I figured the bar has been set so low with the first episode <laughs> that the other twenty-three have to. Be I I hope it doesn't go lower. I mean, I can't. Yeah, that first one was a chore. Real quick, before we wrap up, there is a bonus disc called Relics from the Crypt. Uh, I was the only one of the three of us that watched anything on it. There is some really cool stuff on this. You get a 1964 Swiss documentary short called Horror, which features interviews with Christopher Lee, Boris Karloff, Vincent Price, Roger Corman, Roy Ashton. It's 16 minutes. French was English subtitles. Short, sweet, and it was fun. Absolutely. Two Christopher Lee interviews, actually, visual interviews. There's one from a 1976 Belgian TV show called Cinescope, which is really entertaining. That's the one that I'm pretty sure where Christopher Lee actually is like smiling in the interview and very, he's in a way, not, you know, usually he's very stoic and very serious. He's, he's actually very lighthearted at times in this interview. It's really good. And then another one from 1975 with a uh, Colin Crimshaw, which isn't nearly as good. Uh, and mostly, I hate to say it, but because of the interviewer. But it's still, it's, it's fun watching. There's also an audio interview. There is a like 35-minute segment of Christopher Lee talking about Boris Karloff. This was from an unfinished 91 documentary called The Man Behind the Mask. That gets a little dry. It's inter- it's entertaining, but it's basically Christopher Lee looking at the camera and talking about Boris Karloff. 
it definitely needed a little bit of life pepped into it. And I'm assuming that if the documentary would have been finished, that 34 minutes would have been maybe separated and spread out over the course and the best parts would have been pulled. There's also uh, other stuff, an interview with a movie historian, Alan Frank. There's a Crypt Keepers documentary about Crypt of the Vampire, uh, some outtakes from To the Devil a Daughter. There is a 18-minute interview from 2011 at the University of College Dublin with Sir Christopher Lee, which is kind of interesting to see him towards the end of his life. Then the price of admission alone for the bonus disc, Oh, Sola Mio, It's Now or Never and She'll Never Fall or She'll Fall for Me, Christopher Lee and Gary Curtis, music videos there. Yeah, you got to see them to believe them. Absolutely fun bonus disc. But on top of all the movies and the 93 plus page book really does make, in my opinion, this set. Even if you don't like all the movies, it's a fantastic, well put together set from Severin of some films that we haven't really had a chance to see before. And I don't know if you all just heard that ding on my phone, but uh, another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast has dropped. So uh, I really want to get to listening to that. Steve, we, we plugged all your stuff earlier. Anything in particular you want to point out here before we go? Let's see. Well, we're ending the year with, like I said, Marley Renfro, an episode of The Old Dark House with the James Earl Retrospective, and also have an interview with James Rosen, who is a character actor who was in things like movie-wise, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. And then next year, we got Pat Cardi, who is in Let's Kill Uncle Horror High, you know, looking at the genre thing. That's that's a pretty good, that's over a two-hour-long interview where he talks about the ups and downs of his career. And, and, and some of the stuff he says he's never brought up in other interviews. It was kind of interesting. So it's uh, what we'll be going through. And um, be interviewing a guy tomorrow after we're done this episode. Um, his name is Jim Apparel, A-U-P-P-E-R-L-E. And listeners, you've never heard a name before, but look him up. He has done a ton of effects work, stop motion and other, for other movies. Um, that's out there. He also knew Ray Harryhausen personally, so it's going to be an inter- that's going to be an interesting interview that I'll be doing tomorrow. Thank you for joining us, Milo. Thank you for joining us yes, for part of you. it at least. We'll have to do it again sometime, except for your you know, bringing us down with your bad opinion of *Crypto the Vampire*. <laughs> and here I was going to ask you guys if you had any questions, you want me to ask Beverly Warshburn when I interview her next weekend. Now I might not ask, ask her if she liked Crypt of the Vampire. <laughs> I'll ask her if she's even heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, though, for coming on and helping us celebrate our wonderful Christopher Lee Christmas. And uh, as uh, I know that Jeff and I will do here shortly, but a uh, happy holiday season to you, my friend. Always a pleasure to talk to you, as, as we do often, off mic and off camera. And I'm, I know we'll talk before... The Christmas season arrives officially. I guess we're in it now before Christmas arrives. But happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and thank you for for joining us today. Everybody else, we will be right back after one more break for new business. may love and forget a hundred women, but who can forget his first love? Take young Valdemar, for instance. 
He was stubborn in his devotion to the lady in question because she was rich, beautiful, and a princess. He was not put off by the host of admirers surrounding her until he found out who one of them was, and then he threatened to jump off the cliff. Um, but it was only a bluff. It would probably have been better for young Valdemar in Ivan Turgenev's strange story if he had never met the elusive young lady. Even when she said no to him for the last time, he was prepared to die for her, for his was an undying love. We are back with new business. We've got a fair amount of home video releases this month, Rich, and I think that's good for Christmas for those that want to beef up their collections, which I know you and I both need to do. Drastic. Yeah, so we have so little to watch. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about some of these, though. Uh, for example, 1221, December 21st, Vampire Lovers, Collector's Edition, coming from Shout. This is one of the few movies that I actually have had a number of different versions of. And I know it's got the cover, but is the cover alone a reason to purchase a Blu-ray? I just don't know how I feel about this. How do you feel about it? Um, I'm trying to think which version I have of this. I, hasn't this been out on Blu-ray already? Yes. Yeah. That's actually one of the few Hammer Blu-rays I do have. Yeah. Is Mark Maddox doing the cover for this yes. one? And, yeah. and the poster. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing cover. Yeah. Is it worth buying again? Uh, it's, it's, you know, not for me. I've gotten to where I've said before, I, I don't want to double dip. Uh, if I've got something and I'm happy with the quality of it, I'd rather put that money on a film that I don't have in my collection rather than spend it on something that I already have. If you haven't, this would be the time to get it and add it to your collection. Absolutely. If you've already had it, I guess it depends. If you've got that expendable cash and you don't have my address on hand, then <laughs> I guess go ahead. Uh, yeah. I mean, totally. If you want to go ahead and and I, which I back in the day, I would do a lot of upgrades and, New versions came out and oftentimes didn't have anything more than the previous version. I've just gotten a bit pickier about what I add to my collection and don't, but good time to add it to yours if you don't have it. I did think of a, a reason, though, to maybe do that. If you think about it, you, I don't know how the big the poster is that you get of the cover art by Mark Maddox, but if you think about collecting those and if you were to buy a print from Mark Maddox, how much would that be? That might be an angle to go with, but I'm so far behind i don't even know if you can still get those posters with uh absolutely that could be reason alone here's one that i feel like has been on video several different times i do not have it a must for anybody's library trog i don't have that i have it on my dvr recent turner classic movies october airing i may get that it's going to go on my list but it's not a top priority also on the 21st, big day for Shout Factory. We have two, not necessarily horror, but thrillers, No Way to Treat a Lady and Lady in a Cage. Lady in a Cage I've watched within the last couple of years, and that's a great movie. These are those eh, bordering on exploitation. Lady in a Cage. Lady in the Cage, isn't that where she gets stuck in the elevator? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good movie. That's yeah, really good very movie. good. Also on December 21st from Arrow, we have the second box set in the Jallo Essentials set. And I think it's three movies. And I think this is, in my mind, a better set collection of movies than was in the first set. We have What Have They Done to Your Daughters, which I've seen, Torso, which I've seen. And then the third I have not seen, but for the title alone, Strip Nude for Your Killer. I've, I've seen that title before, yeah. 
And then finally, and I've got nothing to say about it, but I imagine you could go on a little uh, rant or not rant, tangent about it. The Shaw Scope Volume 1 set is coming out from Arrow on December 28th. Oh, man, that, that's on my wish list. It was like I had to compile a Christmas list because there were people asking me. I was like, man, that's that, that thing's pricey. Is it going to go out of print in, in three weeks? You know, uh, I'm having to keep it on my wish list. Richard's being a good boy and is keeping that on the wish list. And at some point, as I work my way through, you know, films, if that is still available, that's a potential rabbit hole there. I've seen some Shaw films, but not in good quality, not great stuff. And it sounds like an amazing box set to have. Talk to me tomorrow and I may change my mind, but today I'm standing firm. Then one title in the first couple of weeks of January where we will cut off. Uh, I've never heard. I, I have heard of this. I didn't know much about it from 1978. The Mafu Cage, M-A-F-U. It's yeah. coming from Kino Lorber. Sounds very interesting. It's got Lee Grant, Carol Kane, Will Gear, And here's the IMDb synopsis. Ellen, a successful astronomer, cares for her mentally ill sister, mentally Ill sister Sissy, who keeps a variety of primates in their home. They inherited from their anthropologist father. When Ellen begins a romance, Sissy's jealousy proves deadly. There's some a couple in February that people seem to be excited about. We'll talk about those next time. Birthdays for the month of December and first couple weeks of January. Barbara Steele, December 29th, 1937. We talked about her in episode 52, Barbara Steele. January 3rd, 1930, Mara Corday. She was in Tarantula, among other things, and we talked about that recently in episode 58, Back to the Drive-In Part 1. And then January 11th, 1886, George Zuko. We talked about him in episode 57, George Zuko's Secret. Anniversaries, movies released this time of year. December 14th, 1945, the cleverly named Pillow of Death. We talked about that in episode 55, Enter the Inner Sanctum. December 17th, 1976, King Kong. We talked about it in episode number... Um, <laughs> I drew a blank. You, you were talking pillow of death, and I was thinking, oh, God, I'm trying to think. No, episode one. Episode yes. One, of course. Yeah, yeah. Almost five years ago. And then December 25th, 1946, The Beast with Five Fingers. And Rich, I swear we have talked about that because I remember distinctly talking about the ending. I could not find, though, which episode it was. We did an episode on Peter Lorre, episode 16, back in March of 2018. We did Mad Love, Tales of Terror, and The Beast with Five Fingers. Okay, good. That is it for birthdays, anniversaries, and pretty much new business. Let's pull out the crystal ball and see what's going on elsewhere. Richard, what's up with you? Besides making appearances on on other podcasts, I've been focusing on uh, old-time radio holiday stuff, just, you know, throwing some stuff out there for change of pace. Uh, I've been doing some Thanksgiving-themed old-time radio things and doing Christmas through well, as, as we get this up, you know, we're we're not quite to Christmas yet. Probably a couple more weeks worth. And of course, all the other old episodes are out there and they're being added to my playlist on on YouTube. And I'll probably throw something in 
between Christmas and New Year's, that'll be uh, New Year's related. And then my my goal is, you know, before we do our next episode, I will have started Sherlock Holmes, throwing up one Sherlock Holmes old-time radio show per week, uh, usually on Wednesdays. A lot of different variations of Sherlock Holmes over the years, but I'm going to be focusing on the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce era, uh, which was from 39 until 44. 46, I believe. I'm trying to remember the exact dates. Because Basil Rathbone left, Nigel Bruce stayed on for one more year. They brought in Tom Conway as the voice. And actually, I felt did a a fairly good job as Sherlock Holmes. He's not Basil Rathbone, but the show still was entertaining to listen to. So other than that, you know, this time of year, I'm I'm neck deep in in Christmas movies, multiple versions of A Christmas Carol and stuff like that. But I'm not going to be covering it on the blog. I've done that in previous years. If something inspires me, something may pop up before Christmas, it'd be fun maybe to, to focus on another Christopher Lee movie to tie in. I don't know. I think we're going to cover these other movies and, and stuff on the show. So I might just enjoy the, the holiday season and throw out some old time radio shows and, and uh, be a little quiet over at the blog. What about you? The three Mondays that are not one that we release the podcast. I am going to do a, a Christopher Lee Euro movie. I haven't decided which yet. Uh, I seem to have this com- compulsion to go chronologically, but we, of course, have the other two movies on the set that we didn't talk about. We've got The Whip and the Body you mentioned earlier. I've never seen that. Virgin of Nuremberg slash Horror Castle. I'm going to pick a couple of those and just randomly sprinkle those in on the blog on Mondays. On Wednesdays is DC Comics Guy. And on Fridays is TV Terror Guide. We are coming up on uh, a movie we did talk about on the show. Where are all the people? Where have the people gone? Where have all the people gone with yes. Peter Graves? Yeah. yeah. So maybe talk- I like probably a lot more than I should, but I enjoy that one. Yeah. So that'll be coming up. And I believe, I believe that's about it. I'm having to check my list, right? Because it's like, when did we do... Where have all the people gone? Back in September of 2020, episode 48, TV Fall Season Part 2. When we did our two back-to-back episodes that month, we did Where Have All the People Gone, along with Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. Thank you. For those playing along at home. Our, our historian of the club pulling out minutes from last past meetings and meetings. <laughs> What are we doing next time? You hinted at it a little bit earlier. We have a big, big occasion coming up. Absolutely. So, you know, next month we have a an anniversary coming up. It is episode 65, which also happens to be our fifth anniversary on the show. We started way, way, it seems forever ago. We started back in January 2017, five years ago with King Kong and uh, focusing on the 76 version of King Kong. We hadn't got our format as fine-tuned as we do now, but we would with by the time we got to episode three. You know, I, and I'm sure we'll probably talk more about it next month, but gosh, five years, we've covered a lot of films and we have, both you and I have been through life changes. The one constant has always been you and I sitting down and, and watching movies and talking about movies, and that's been an absolute thrill. So we are going to continue that tradition Uh, as we start off a new year, 2022, by taking a look at three movies 
with the name or number five in them. Uh, And there's not as many as you would think. And as we said, we watched The Beast with Five Fingers already, so that immediately was off the list. We are going to be taking a look at a movie called Five from 1951, which is a bit of a post-apocalyptic kind of character study. Dimension Five from 1966, starring Jeffrey Hunter from Star Trek. So my Star Trek reference is already sealed. Devil Times Five from 1974. Uh, I have seen two of the three. I've seen Five and Devil Times Five. Dimension Five will be a first-time viewing for me. What about you? Have you seen those any of those before? I have seen Devil Times Five, and that will be a good discussion, I believe. That's interesting film. That is an interesting film. And you know what we'd also like to do is have anyone call in and maybe give us some wishes or thoughts. You can do that again by calling us at 616-649-2582. I'm going to put you on the spot, Richard. I know you don't do it twice, but it was so pleasurable. Let's do it again. 616-649. Music to my ears. (laughs) I'm trying to be more complimentary. There was no sarcasm in that. There should be. (laughs) Anything else? Is that it? I think that's it. Special thank you to uh, our good friend, Mr. Steve Church, for joining us for our film discussion on the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism. You know what? Just final thought. This box set is out there currently. As we record, it is available for $87.51 on Amazon. I don't know how long that price will last, but that's a pretty darn good price. I think it was maybe a tad cheaper during the Severin 50% off sale over Black Friday. You can order it from them, or you can check and see if that price is still good on Amazon. And we've talked very little about it, but this is our holiday episode. So if you celebrate it, Merry Christmas. Other holidays seem to go around this time of year. So I hope everyone's happy and healthy, gets to see family this year. It has a great, great holiday season. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy December 25th. But if you're listening, thank you. Uh, you know, I, and I'm, I'm not sure we did we do that in, during our Thanksgiving month episode. Uh, a good enough. Thank you. Let's do it again. Thank you to everyone who, who listens to our show. It's been a, a wonderful almost five years. And none of that would be possible without uh, people continuing to join the club and tune in and listen and share in conversations and share their thoughts on Facebook. I will say a a special thank you to my partner in crime. I am so thankful that as you moved away two years ago, went north to Minnesota, that we've been able to maintain our friendship and is just as close as ever. Uh, As I wish the same to everyone out there, I will wish you a uh, early Merry Christmas and a uh, Happy New Year. And uh, thank you for almost five years of podcast bliss. That's very nice. Thank you. I will save my similar thoughts for next time, but definitely wish you and Carla and all your family a a Merry Christmas. We both celebrate Christmas, so I won't be embarrassed to say Merry Christmas. So we'll go out on what is probably simultaneously the most peppy version of Silent Night I've ever heard, as well as the most ear-piercing version. Silent Night by Christopher Lee, again from the 2012 single, A Heavy Metal Christmas, available on Apple Music. We will see you in a month. Stay safe and take care, everyone.